Today, ahead of its upcoming second season, we'll be discussing the television show Never Have I Ever, created by Mindy Kaling, and we'll be discussing conversion disorder. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. We should have some like Metallica type of music to enter, enter to. Anyway, go ahead. I'm going to leave that in, I think. <laughs> I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. I'm not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, in anticipation of the upcoming second season, we'll be discussing our thoughts on Mindy Kaling's television show, Never Have I Ever. And we'll be discussing conversion disorder, which is actually depicted in season one of the show. But before we get to that, Ali, I want to talk to you about the recent passing of somebody. And this this person's death not getting as much news as I thought it would. Exactly. For you, it's like you lost a friend, I'm pretty sure, huh? Every nerdy movie that raised you as a child is on this guy's resume. That's right. My my condolences, Thank man. You. Thank he you. Was, he was 91. He was 91. He was 91. So this is Richard Donner, in case you're wondering who uh, we're talking about. Richard Donner was 91. He passed away for from undisclosed causes uh, a few weeks ago. Oh, those undisclosed causes. They'll get you every time, huh? Won't they? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Still trying to figure that out in medicine, how to <laughs> diagnose and treat those. But That's another episode. That's right. He directed lots of movies movies in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So The Omen was probably his big breakout movie. Very scary. Scared the That's young right. crap out of me. So And then insane. he did Superman, which is a classic movie. Actually, uh, we rewatched it with our kids a couple summers ago, pre-COVID. I say Neil before Zod to my children all the time, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And I know that's Superman too. Of course, you're going to correct me, but yeah, I gotta. We gotta do it. We gotta do that in this house too. One, one to three. We gotta have a Superman day. I just don't, does it does it stand up to the test of time? Superman is compared to the it, it's it's a well done movie and it looks great, but it's very slow moving compared to like any. I know. Can you imagine like the Miles Morales Spider Man? They watch and then they watch Superman afterwards. They must be like, "What is?" They this? were like, "What is happening? Where's all the action yeah. movies?" And we, we, I think I want to show them Superman too. But it's so interesting. You talked about those two movies, and this was almost unprecedented when those two movies came out. Richard Donner was contracted to make both movies. That's why. By your General Zod in the Phantom Zone. I had to rewatch the movies to remember this. They appear and they go to the jail. Remember the triangular mirror jail that's floating around in space? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the how non-nerdy of me to describe it in this. That's in the first movie. Then they don't get mentioned again. And then in the second movie, they get released right from the Phantom Zone, and then they all the action happens. So they actually said, we're going to make these two movies. With the second one, there was a lot of interference with Richard Donner's directing. And so he had to leave and he was replaced by Richard Lester, I believe. That's why there's a director's cut of it, which is a bit less silly. You know, we all remember when like the mm. <laughs> villains are using the super breath and the guy's like going backwards on his roller skates and the ice cream falls off like somebody's uh, thing. So, and that's like not so Donner is less silly. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, Donner was apparently more serious. And so, which is interesting because his other movies are 
The Goonies, yeah, I love the Scrooged, Goonies. Yeah, yeah. right? Uh, Lethal Weapon is obviously a huge part of his repertoire. Yeah, I think, I, and I think you just summarized those movies are like you know you've named like four or five movies because it's all the Lethal Weapon sequels he did. Mm. He did all of those afterwards. I mean, those are such formative movies. The Goonies was great. I mean, I love that. My daughter watched it a little while ago. But he also, he did a lot of television and it's just funny that he was known as a serious guy because he did Gilligan's Island and what did it get smart and stuff like that. So it's like, I would have thought this guy, you know, specializes in serenity as well. Scrooge is a great movie. So, and and, and even Lethal Weapon, the first one is actually quite serious and and the second one to a certain extent. But then as soon as you get Joe Pesci into the third and fourth and Chris Rock, you know, and then it it veers into silliness. But that formula of the buddy comic and, you know, I'm too old for this Danny Glover. Buddy cop, not the buddy comic, but yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, buddy, buddy cop, Danny Glover is that the retired cop, just one more trying to retire. I mean, it's it's a trope now, but it was great back then. It yeah. was, you can't underestimate that influence. And towards the end of his career, it was like Maverick with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster. That was like an okay movie. And I don't know, did you ever see 16 Blocks with Bruce Willis and Moss Def? No, uh, no, I love Moss Def. Oh, dude, <laughs> you won't after seeing I, oh, that no, movie. Then I can't, his, then I can't his, see it. Just watch a clip of the accent he chooses. It's not even an accent, just the voice that he chooses for this kid, which that he plays, yeah. which is totally basically the plot of that movie is you have to get this criminal. I think Bruce Willis is a cop has to get this criminal sixteen blocks to something, and all these people want to kill him, and, and most of plays that. Okay. Oh, I remember the theme. Yeah, I remember that. I can't. I love him. Most deaf. Yasin Bey. I'll stay. I'll keep his rap and his music in my mind, and and instead. But like, oh my God, just, you just gotta listen. Everybody pause this podcast. No. Yeah. But it's like, why would you choose this? Who let you do this? Richard Donner is the yeah, answer. So that. that's, you know, one blight on Richard Donner. Yeah. Rest in peace, Richard Donner. Again, like, you know, as you said, four or five seminal movies. Well, most interesting thing about Richard Donner, I'm sure this interview is talking about this a little, a little bit more in detail, but his goal was to become an actor. He moved to, you know, he left New York. He'd been in the Navy. He went to university for a little while, but then he said, I'm going to Los Angeles to become an actor. And somebody said, you should be a director instead. And that's not an, that's by no means an easy transition. That's not like, oh yeah, that works. I'll just do a quick mental (laughs) shift and do that instead. I mean, that's like, I don't know. That's kind of insane. I, I, he must've had an eye for something or a talent for something or not, or he was so bad at acting that this person was like, you know, why don't you get on the other side of the camera? And he was like, you mean directing? Well, like you do- no, I meant holding a <laughs> microphone, but fine, do whatever. But anyway, his uh, his career, his incredible career, was made by that one person's suggestion and encouragement. So that's pretty impressive. So, Ali, I want to talk to you about your thoughts on this television show, Never Have I Ever. Now, this show is coming out for a second season this week, and so I thought it would be perfect to talk about. And just so everybody is clear, we're going to be previewing a couple shows this summer that are that are coming up with their second seasons. The other one is Ted Lasso, which we'll talk about in a subsequent episode, and Apple TV Plus was very kind enough to give us screeners for Ted Lasso. Great. What, what a great company. Now, Netflix, 
Two brown guys here. Don't do it. Don't do it. I tell you, Netflix. Come on. <laughs> where are the screeners? So we have to talk where about the, the previous screeners? season, and we're unable to preview the seasons. Right. Netflix. But that's okay, too. I think it's good to revisit because it wasn't like immediately, you know, probably COVID related, but probably also like, what is our story? What is our second season? Part of me wishes this this show just lived in its first season, you know, but I remember feeling the same thing about Master of None. And then I really enjoyed the second season. I was like, no, this is good. But sometimes I just, I worry about Hollywood greed and the Mm -hmm, profit motive mm -hmm. getting in the way of, I'm I'm very, I have that UK mentality, you know, we did a good thing, done, let's move on. What else is happening? Well, we'll talk about it, like I said, in the subsequent episode with Ted Lasso, but that is three seasons total right. and they're not doing anymore. Jason Sudeikis has been pretty clear about that. He just he has other commitments and things like that and he thinks that's the way the story should go because you're right. It should be driven by the story and not driven by you know, let's try and get some more money out of this. Yeah. So just to back up a sec, so this was created by Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher and yeah, it's based partially, partially based yeah. on her life, yeah. Not quite. Her Mother was a physician, as is the main character in this show. Now, her mother died like about 10 years ago, so when Mindy was much older. And this is a, she's an only child in the show. Mindy has a brother. Who maybe one day we'll talk about his uh, interesting life. For a preview, Google him applying to medical school, and you'll read a very interesting story about Mindy and her brother. It's narrated by John McEnroe, and you see why as the season progresses. We'll try not to have too many spoilers, but... Season came out a year ago, so you know, come on. Yeah, so come on, you guys. We was a pandemic. Uh, there was nothing but time right. to watch stuff. Yeah. Come on, people. And the main character is played, of course. I'm probably going to butcher her name, so my apologies in advance. A Canadian, Mitri Ramakrishnan. And how was that, Ollie? Do you think that was okay? I mean, uh, most names you say give a pain, a shooting pain into my ears, but I guess that was okay, man. That was as bad as anything you do. So it was, it was fine. We're used to that. So she's the main actress and she actually had no acting experience, right? Like- no acting experience. Went out for a casting call. And the two most interesting things about this show, if I can be a little bit of a negative Nelly for a second here, number one. You would be okay. You 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 wouldn't be dismissed for having some suspicion about what's her acting going to be like. But at the same time, once you get through that casting call, they'll probably had like four or five auditions and like, you know, screen testing. Like, how is she actually on camera? How is she with these actors? And by the time you know we're watching it, this is a tested actor. But you still have that suspicion as a viewer, like, am I going to see flaws in this performance? I mean, that was weird. Honestly, flawless performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Playing a young, annoying high schooler with various sort of neuroses and all that. Flawless performance. Like, really incredible talent. Second thing about the show I'm going to say, on paper, I should have been annoyed by this show, by like episode four. I should have been like, "This, this character is super annoying and I'm out. And the story is so good and the performances are so good that I was like, no, I can work through anything that annoys me in this show because this is a good product. And that doesn't happen all the time. No. And we talked on previous episodes about characters who are like jerks and who make bad decisions. And you have to work hard to like those characters. Well, yeah, you don't always want to go on that journey. And that's very, you know, and I've, I've left my wife and I have this weird thing. My wife will be like, we've invested 45 minutes into this movie. 
let's just finish it. And I'm like, I don't know if that's glass half full or glass half empty, but I'm like, I have wasted 45 minutes. I can still salvage a shred of self-respect by turning off this movie. There is a Ben Stiller film, and I love Ben Stiller. There's a Ben Stiller film, and I can't remember. The name of the film is his character's name, Greenberg or something like this. Yeah, I think it's Greenberg. Greenberg. It was so difficult to watch. I hated the lead character. And I was like, I don't care what happens to you. You're so awful the way you treat other human beings. I don't want to know. I don't want to go on this journey. And I pulled the shoot and I was out. My wife was in disbelief. Like, you don't even want to know. You don't care. I was like, I do not care. And as I say, on paper, you know, she's pretty rude at times. She's a whiner. Maybe that's why John McEnroe, he sets a good tone, you know? Yeah, yeah. Plays plays her, yeah. The the whiner in chief narrates the show. So you're like, well, maybe this is what the tone is. Maybe she pales in comparison compared to John. But yeah, she's rude and she lies and she's, you know, tells lies for weird reasons. But man, great show. 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. Yeah, I am not alone in my love for the show. Oh, there you go. Those three <laughs> percent critics can just shove it. But so, a, a part of it is coached because very early on in the season, they explain one of the reasons why she's so screwed up because her father died, mm. and so now her mother is raising her by herself, and her father died during a performance. She plays the harp in the show, mm-hmm. and she his her father died during a performance, and that <laughs> no. Thanks to any harp players out there or parents of harp players. Not sure why you laughed about the harp, but I laughed too. Well, I'm not sure why. Because I read something online. They're like, it's it's so refreshing because it's a brown character on yes. TV that does, you know, or even in real life who doesn't play piano or violin, yes. right? They, yeah. picked, they picked something else. And listen, if you want your child to really excel and like do music, pick the harp, pick the oboe. Pick the harpsichord mm. because there's not going to be a lot of experts in that as opposed to the violin where you're like pushing each other out of the way to try and get the first chair in your primary school violin competition. So getting back to the show, in fact, the show is all about her dealing with her father's death, but her inappropriate dealing with mm. her father's death. We'll talk a bit about she loses the function of her legs, which we'll talk about in the second half of the show. She is makes a lot of bad choices in the first season of the show. And they also, what I loved about the show is they show that dealing with grief like this is not an instantaneous thing, right? Mm -hmm. It takes time and people often make bad decisions. And maybe that's why we're a bit more sympathetic to her character is because we see very early on what happened and and how, which maybe gives an explanation to her actions, not an excuse, but an explanation. Well, this is one of the great things about this show. Like the backdrop is grief Mm -hmm. and dealing with grief that's not just a backdrop but that's sort of like the inciting incident sort of that makes Mm -hmm. that that leads Mm -hmm. to everything in her life but at the same time this show as far as themes checks off a lot of boxes but it never feels like it's checking off boxes this episode will be about homosexuality you know it never felt like that it felt everything happened organically and you really do feel like at some level you're just watching a 10-hour film, you know, or whatever it is, an eight-hour mm-hmm, film mm-hmm. with each character having their own sort of moment. But I don't know how they did it, to be honest, where you never felt like, oh, this will be Leah Rodrigo's uh, episode and now we have yes. to do something with her. And now yeah. we'll have to do yeah. something with her. I think because all these kids are so intertwined in their high school life, it just made mm-hmm. sense that everybody's going through their own things all yeah. the time. 
I think it's and it's just it's a well written show and and you see that you, you have this through line and you have all these different characters but again it feels organic. One other thing that feels organic in the show is it's we've talked about diverse casting and diverse representation before the show. I was I remember at the end of the season I'm like wait how many white characters like major characters are there in the show and I couldn't really think of any. There is one white character, Ben, ben the nemesis. Ben, yeah, and he's Jewish, so you know, not 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 purely white, we'll say. So Ben, uh, uh, who's played by Jaron Lewison, that's her like nemesis. So I think he's one of the only in terms of the main characters. Really, mm-hmm. he's the only one. Everybody else is is ethnically diverse, and you don't notice. It's not the first. It's not the foremost thing in your mind, which is why I liked it. Them being ethnically diverse is not the point. It's not hitting you over the head with it. It's just the way it is, and you just kind of accept it. I don't know. It's like a little magic trick. Totally. Well, I mean, with the lead character, the ethnic, the ethnicity sure. and the background and the religion plays an overarching role, right? It's that strictness of Indian culture, and it's that myopia that often comes with us South Asians about various things have to be done a certain way, and you have to marry this type of person, and you can't marry that type of... That's definitely connected to the culture, but I think, yeah, everybody else, it's just like, yeah, I went to a high school with people of a lot of different backgrounds. That's it, right? Their backgrounds didn't serve any other purpose other than to sort of make them interesting people. That's it. You know, it's mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. Well, I do definitely want to talk about that because when I went from like liking the show to loving the show was with episode mm. four, which is, you know, every episode is called never have I ever then yeah. dot, dot, dot. And then a phrase. So it's this episode is never have I ever dot, dot, dot felt super Indian. And it there it's basically the whole episode focuses around it's a weekend and it's Ganesh Puja. So they're going to celebrate this with the Hindu community and they're celebrating this occasion at the high school where she goes to, but it's just on the weekend. So some people are around, not too many people. So they dress up in Indian clothes and then they go to it. You know, on the way there, she stops at Starbucks. She's wearing a sari and a little girl wants to have like a picture taken with her because she thinks she's Jasmine, you know? And like we've talked about before, that's like, I guess, considered by many people to be a microaggression, even though it's like Mm. a little kid. And, and, you know, they play it for laughs on it. Clearly, the main character, um, Davey, is is annoyed by by this little girl just kind of asking to take this picture to post it on her Instagram or whatever. But this idea, and I don't know, I mean, this episode I just could relate to so much because it's like, and I'll just be honest, this embarrassment that I used to have, like, oh my gosh, I'm wearing Indian clothes and you walk outside to your car, you're like, oh, I'm hoping nobody sees me and like makes fun of me because I'm wearing Indian clothes. And obviously this is like my insecurity as a kid, like I'll accept this. And then it's funny though, because she mentions this, right? In the show, she's like, some people say I'm too Indian, right? And other people think I'm not Indian enough. And she's caught in this mm. in between, right? And so, I don't know, that that really kind of resonated with me, this whole thing about meeting the people there and, and its comments on Indian culture. It's interesting, you know, like uh, we have uncles and aunties sit around outside on their front lawn in a shalvar kameez. Why? Why not? This is my, this is my dress. This is my mm-hmm, traditional, mm-hmm. you know, clothing. And this is what I'm comfortable in. Whereas like, you know, kids like you and I growing up in the 70s and the 80s, it was like... I'm just like you guys, huh? I'm Ali, but I'm Al. I'm Al. I'm I'm Alex, you know, whatever. I'm the guys. I'm just transcend. I also remember when I was a kid, Stacy Burns was our neighbor. His mother would be like, you know, I, I remember finding it fascinating that Stacy Burns' mother would be like, Stacy, 
je t'ai dit déjà, tu viens ici, supper is ready right now, I told you to come over, you know, and she would like seamlessly go from French to English, and I remember thinking, wow, that's so cool. Meanwhile, my parents are going from Punjabi to Urdu to right. English all the time, and that wasn't cool. I'm like, they're, they're doing the exact same thing. And you like speak English, man. Yes, it's so annoying. There's a point that happens in the show where she runs into like a friend of hers who's now a bit older than her, who's now in university, mm. right? And she's kind of like, oh, this is so lame, eh? We got to dress up like this and go to this. And the guy's like, yeah, you know what? It's not that bad. You know, now that I've been at university and come back, I, I kind of like accepted it. He tells a story. He has a friend at university who's First Nations person and, and he went to some of the events with the person and they're like, yeah, they're proud of their heritage. And why are we, why should we be embarrassed of our heritage? And she's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. And then she kind of just walks off yeah. after that thing. And that, again, I thought a lot about that. But I'm like a bit like Davey in the show in that I'm very curious because we, we never really talked about this. But when I went to university and then you went to McGill, I went to the University of Ottawa. I would see these people who were like, I'm going to join the Indian Student Society or the South Asian Student Society, right? And I'm like... Yeah, but you, I knew you in high school and you had nothing to do with Indian culture. And now you're trying to find yourself in university and now you're doing this. And I found that so false that I kind of rebelled against that whole thing. I was like, not, not, I was the anti this, this friend of Davies, right? And I was so, I'm like, ugh, you know, and then I know that you took Urdu classes but in, it's in, so in university. You say this. And I was like, uh, whatever, you don't like, not that I, like judged you or anything, but I if I knew you, we went to the same university, I'd be like, oh, you guys are taking Urdu classes. You guys don't know anything about this. You're just hmm. taking it because you're trying to find yourself. That's probably how I would have judged because you. Because we want to learn something about it. <laughs> Listen, I was a negative Nancy back, back then. for learning. No, buddy, I 100% connect with Davey. I 100% connect with that. Oh, it sucks to be like different. And, you know, there was no like sort of celebration of diversity or uniqueness. It was all like, I want to be just like everybody else. I don't want to be different. Even though my personality might have been something where I, I want to sort of stand out, but not for anything brown or connected to South Asian Mm -hmm. culture and absolutely a total transformation. I leave high school and I meet these various people who are like proud of their culture and proud of their community and and, and proud of the, the, the music from South Asia or these fashion shows. And mm -hmm. it opened up my world. I think, I think my mind all of a sudden went, oh, you mean we can be proud of this? Mm -hmm. That's an option? Yeah. I, didn't really, I didn't consider that an option. And the truth is, when I meet my buddy Sandy Magon and he introduces me to Bhangra music, which I had heard before, I was like, I like this. Mm -hmm. But, and I, you know, in his car, he's not like, let's turn down this music that we are sheepishly listening to. He'd be like, no, no, windows are down and I'm turning this up. I'd be like, really? This is crazy. You mm -hmm. can do that? Mm -hmm. That's allowed? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm better off for it. And ironically, you know, now... I think we are, again, two different people where I don't care at all what the aunties and uncles think that is, you know, whereas mm -hmm. I think you and I have talked about that too. And we have friends who are like still, you know, in their 40s, late 50s and like, oh my God, I, I can't, I can't be seen smoking this cigarette. I'm like, you're 48 right. years old, buddy. Well, I mean, it, it's time to live your own life. I, mean, I think that time was 25 years ago, actually. Well, let's, let's talk a bit about that because that's another hilarious thing that they do in this where they try to explain this concept of aunties because you've used that aunties and uncles, but we're not, these aren't like literal 
mm-hmm. blood relations, right? We call everybody in our community, if they're older than you, basically, your parents' age, the auntie or uncle. That's just what- Yeah. Do. I mean, the best way for me to explain it to somebody who's not South Asian is it's the equivalent of saying sir or ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the sir or man. Yeah, we would never call someone Mr. I wouldn't have addressed your mom as Mrs. Hassan. Yeah. Like, that's that's just not what we do. Absurd, even to hear you say it right now. Yeah, it sounds so stupid. Like, I can't, it's very (laughs) awkward for me to say that. So, the quote from the the movie is, so this is John McEnroe as a narrator explaining what aunties are. Aunties are older Indian women who have no blood relation to you, but are allowed to have opinions on your life and shortcomings, and you have to be nice to them because you're Indian. Yeah. like that is that's it that's basically what it is and what we were talking about with some of our friends a little while ago was this the kind of the constant kind of gossip in the community and these judging people and bragging about their kids but really it's not the bragging i don't really have a problem with people bragging about their kids like that's normal behavior Mm. but it's taking down other people and like the the slight comments and the judging. I'm like, what? why are you judging? And I don't have any time for that. And somebody the other day, I was explaining to someone who's also Indian. They're like, well, other communities do that too. And I'm like, so what? That doesn't negate the fact that it happens mm-hmm. in our community all the time. I don't know if I told you this story. So it was in Seattle at a conference. I was catching a a cab to the airport. And this is like just a couple of years ago. So I could have done an Uber or a Lyft. I'm like, well, it's like taxi outside, right outside the hotel. I just grab cab driver one. judged you. This, I already know where this is going. It's happened to me it's too. A, these guys. a Sikh guy, Punjabi guy, yeah. right? starts speaking to me in Punjabi. I'm like, yes, yeah, sorry, I don't speak Punjabi, right? which is not the craziest thing in the world. Not all brown people speak Punjabi. Yeah. So yeah. he's like, oh, you know, basically judging me. Oh, your parents, your parents didn't teach you this. And I'm like, I'm coming to doing? a medical conference, you jackass. <laughs> Come on. I'm like, I'm like, anyway, so I just didn't talk to the guy for the whole thing. And, you know, the same thing happened at a wedding a couple of years ago. It's because I don't speak Urdu very well at all, like minimally. I can understand it, but I don't really don't speak it. You speak better than I do. And an auntie, like some old auntie at some table again starts speaking to me in Urdu. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not that good. And she's looking at me, judging me. I'm like, I honestly got up mm. and walked away. Like in the mid conversation, I was like, "Why? Why do we put up with this? I don't get it." So I know you're you put up with it even less than me. So I didn't. I didn't allow my. You know what? A really transformative moment was for me. My mother went from a five day work week to a four day work week. This was in the late nineties, early two thousands. I think it was early two thousand. On Fridays, there was a group of Pakistani and Indian women who would sort of get together. These were women who didn't work. And we're sort of stay-at-home mothers, but like with older kids now, all in their 20s. My mother comes back. Now she's got a day off on Friday, so she goes once. She didn't go every Friday to hang out with them, but she went one Friday to hang out with these ladies. And comes back and says, did you know that Sarah is uh, dating a Filipino man? He's like, yeah, I did know that. What's the point? She goes, no, I just, uh, you know, the ladies had mentioned that. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. What, what's happening here? What are the ladies? What is it? What is, who cares? What does that mean? What is the problem? Also, Sarah wound up marrying that Filipino man and having three children with him, making a life with him. That's a different story. That's hardly the point. I was like, why are you ladies getting together and talking about this? I'm sure, I'm certain it wasn't brought up like, great news. You're right. I know. I know. It was like, oh, did you hear? And I know some of the ladies who were part of that group, many of them with very dysfunctional families at home. Exactly. So it's just projection. It's just distraction. And that was like a formative experience for me, which I didn't even partake in. It was just my mother was like, you have to calm down. 
Look at your blood pressure. Look at how you're getting, you know, worked up. And I remember losing my mind over this. I was like, man, why are you talking about our lives? This is not, this is, and, and the people who are talking about our lives should not be talking about anything. They should be dealing with their own messes in their own homes. And that's, I think, you know, that was the start of like, ah, I don't care what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter. In the show, there's a woman who's part of the Hindu community, but she married a Muslim guy and then was basically ostracized because now she's divorced from the guy and nobody talks to her. So she goes to these things. Why would you? And and the reason, I mean, I know it's a show, but I think we've kind of given an example of that often happens in real life. You know what I mean? And we, we've had is. friends who's who are dating people who are the same exact religion, ethnicity, whose parents like stop talking to them. Mm. Sometimes they come around, sometimes they don't. I remember hearing a, a little nugget of wisdom, you know, when I was <laughs> when I was going to marry somebody who wasn't Muslim, I thought, or so I thought. I remember somebody telling me, Don't worry, you know, the parents not may not come to the wedding and they may not support you at first, her parents. But once you have children, everything gets everything is 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 fine. Like, what? We have to have children to bring these people back into their own child's life. That's crazy. To me, oh my god! I was like, that that was supposed to be comforting, but that was far <laughs> from it. I was like, that's that is a real comment on how pathetic human beings can be sometimes. Anyway, you have a great quote from your friend Harp. The best. Yeah, it is the quote I love so he much. He put me on my he put him on me in my place because we used to we used to hang out together and we'd be up late. And Harp has this unique ability to sleep 11 to 13 hours. I mean, this guy really gets good sleep. Myself, especially when there's alcohol in me, five, six hours. So I was up every day by like eight or nine, ready to go. And Harp just sleeping, sleeping, sleeping. And it was starting to eat away at me because then I'm like, go, you know, going ahead in my mind, like, oh, I'm going to be so tired tonight. And then he's going to want to stay up later. And I'd be like, dude, you got to wake up, man. And he'd be like, what time is it? I'd be like, you know, I, I was raised by a mother who it's like 9.02 and I'm still in bed. She's like, you wasted half your day. Right. So I've got that propaganda training in my mind. So I'm like, dude, it's 11.30. And I say it like he's going to be embarrassed. He's like, oh, why are you waking me up? And he'd go back to sleep. And so this continued for a while where I tried to wake him up each day. And one day he goes, dude, why are you taking my life so personally? And I was just stunned silence. And I was like, that's a great line. Every situation when you're judging other people, why are you taking their lives personally? Anyway, great, yeah. great line by Harp. That's got to be on like a, a t-shirt somewhere. somewhere yeah. <laughs> t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to a uh, season two coming out on Netflix. They still should have sent us those screeners, though, I tell you. All right, so this is one of those, I wouldn't say it's rare, but this is one of those great times where both our segments are kind of linked together, like it was, you know, we talked about Chadwick Boseman, and we've had episodes like this, where we're going to talk about a condition that is from that show, Never Have I Ever. And it's called Conversion Disorder. It has some other name as well. What was the other name for it? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing we call it is, in neurology, we call them functional neurologic disorders. Yeah, that's that sounds lame, and that sounds like I'm talking to a nerdy doctor. So conversion dis- now there's nothing wrong with conversion. Like it's not. Is it a misleading? Ter- I know that I thought about gay conversion therapy as soon as I heard it. So is that the problem? Yeah, no, no, no. Let Let's be absolutely clear. We're not talking about gay conversion therapy. At, at all, but it's this term conversion disorder. Even when you use the other term functional neurologic disorders, the difficulty is even when I use those terms, I'm not sure it's getting at what it actually is. Right. You know? It's okay. So the, the here's the thing: conversion disorder. As I looked up what this thing was, it sounds very broad. So I have a lot of questions for you. Number one: Can it be? Her thing was she couldn't walk. I assume. Again, mm-hmm. I don't do too much research or I, ta- I, I sound too knowledgeable. And I know you're threatened by, by how knowledgeable I sound sometimes. Also. <laughs> Number yes, one yeah. is how does it manifest? I imagine it's not just a walking issue. Otherwise, it would be called a leg conversion mm-hmm. disorder or something. Number two, <laughs> is it real? And number three, number three, as if I only have these questions. But the most pressing question is the fact that, you know, she saw her high school crush Right. Yoshida Paxton mm-hmm. Yoshida Hall is there standing on a picnic table, holding court, entertaining his buddies. And yeah. she's in her wheelchair three months in or whatever the time length was. She sees him and stands right up out of a wheelchair, just like that. So that's my other mm-hmm. thing is, does it just live in the brain? Is it real? Is it actually physical? And can it just go away like that? And you people who have children with these disorders, are they just waiting for that kind of eureka moment? And sometimes does it never come? So yeah, I mean, these are all really good questions. So let's back up a bit. So we use this term conversion disorder or functional neurologic disorders. I'll just use them interchangeably. But basically, it's when you have these, let's just stick with neurology, neurologic symptoms. So she had a neurologic symptom, which was paralysis of her lower limbs without any obvious neurologic structural problem or a problem in your brain, spinal cord, nerves, or muscles, okay? And this can happen for a variety of reasons. We're able to diagnose it in neurology clinics. So a lot of people think, oh, so this means like they're faking it, right? They're faking the symptoms because there's nothing wrong with them. It's not really what it is. And for years, it was kind of like the patients didn't want this diagnosis and the doctors didn't want to make this diagnosis because the patients didn't want to hear that there was, quote unquote, nothing wrong with them, right? It's all in their head. It's psychosomatic, all these different terms. And the doctors didn't want to do it because they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, they're going to be angry because we're not diagnosing them with anything. Or what happens is the doctors, you, we used to have the suspicion that this is what's going on. And then we do a bunch of tests, Right. MRIs, CT scans, spinal taps, nerve studies. The doctors think they have to do all these tests. And then when they get to the end of the tests, they're all normal. Then you tell the family, oh, all the tests were normal, so you have this. That doesn't go over well because what families think is, yeah, you're dumb and you did all the tests and they're normal and there's something going on, you're just missing it. There's this disconnect in that. So the way things, I'd say, since the 2000s, the early 2000s, were changing the way in medicine that we approach these disorders, which is I can usually tell it's a functional neurologic disorder, conversion disorder, the minute I see you. And that's because in neurology, we have certain tests that we use. And I just it's because I know the way the nervous system is structured. That's what my job is. You say I can tell it's a conversion disorder as opposed to 
faking it. Is that what you're saying? You can tell that it's an actual. No, that's a that's a good point. No, that's a good point. It's actually very difficult to differentiate someone faking it versus oh, really? a conversion disorder. Conversion disorder and functional neurologic disorders are subconscious. So they're happening on a subconscious level. There's no conscious mm. thought to do this. And uh, let's just say it right now, faking it, which is called malingering in medicine, is extremely uncommon. It, it, it is very, very rare. I've probably only seen it once. Uh, and You're I've seen kidding it, me. Hundreds, hundreds of patients. I feel like I've seen it 10 yeah, times. It happens more in adults, especially for insurance reasons, right? They're on long-term disability. They're collecting something from a, a car accident, some insurance benefits, and then they have an external motivation to continue being impaired when they don't need to. But in kids, it's just not very common at all. Like I said, I've had it once, and they didn't admit to me. They admitted to one of my colleagues who was a um, kind of a more mental health person that, yeah, actually, I've been wow. thinking this the whole time. But that's that's almost never happened. So I don't even want to think about it because this is the problem with trying to you know establish this diagnosis. So first, we have tests that we can do. And just again, it's the way I know how the nervous system works. So for example, if someone has double vision, right? I know how double vision works. So if it's a problem with the nervous system, if you cover one eye with double vision, your double vision should go away. That's just the way the brain and the eyes align. And so if you're like, I cover one eye, I still have double vision, it could very well be conversion type symptoms okay. or functional type symptoms. Same thing. The other, we, we have the, I, I don't want to call them tricks, but they're just methods of our physical examination. So if someone has a tremor, you know, what you do is, and I'm trying to demonstrate a tremor to Ollie right now in our video, and then, but then you, with their other hand, you have them tap a certain rhythm, yeah. right? And their tremor will, in the one hand, will now start to, because you, it's very hard to keep a rhythm with your tremor hand and then do a different rhythm with your other hand. You guys can try it at home, but it's very difficult to do that. So there's ways we know on examination that's what's going on. One of the most important things is to bring this up to families as soon as you think about it, because the rate of a false diagnosis of conversion disorder, so in other words, patients had something serious mm. going on and you're saying that it's conversion disorder or functional neurologic symptoms, that only happens about 4% of the And time. we do- So 96% of the time- We, the royal we, regard conversion disorder as much less serious. Is that how you- that's a good point, and I don't think that's actually not probably not a good way of, of your of words, saying it. buddy. Your it, words. Yeah, I know, and I apologize because that's probably I, I again probably misspeaking on my part. It's more, it's not a brain tumor. It's not something fatal, and it's something that could potentially be treated. How about that? Yeah. Okay. God. And but I've seen a variety of things. So I've seen this leg weakness for sure. Like in the, I've seen one-sided weakness. I've seen patients who have slurring of their speech. I've seen patients with tremor. But I've seen extreme things. I've seen patients who have anterograde amnesia. Okay, retrograde amnesia is when you forget everything that happened before a certain point. And I've seen that as well. So I got hit in the head. I don't remember anything from before that day. Right. A retrograde. That, that, usually, there's a hit. There's a hit. There's some damn, some some shock. Of some there, there has to be to develop amnesia. You have to have a serious injury to your brain, as in you were probably comatose in the ICU for a bit, and then you've come out. It's not just oh, I passed out because I got a mild concussion, and I now I can't remember anything before. And like you know, like we talked about Gilligan's Island and things like that. You know, when someone can't remember who they are. No, you have to have a serious brain injury to have that kind of a, a, amnesia beforehand. And so I've seen patients who've had that, like they have a hit, they can't remember who they were beforehand. I've seen patients who have anterograde amnesia. 
So this kind of functional anterograde amnesia. Anterograde amnesia is like the movie Memento. Yes. You guys saw Memento, where the guy can't generate new memories. He remembers everything before a certain time, but then he can't generate new memories. So I've saw, seen patients who have functional neurologic symptoms for that as well. Mm-hmm. So, And I've seen some patients who are quadriplegic, can't move anything, and need to be fed like through a, through a tube. Wow. And that's all psychosomatic. That's brought yeah. on by your- Yeah. So it's all functional. So- Yeah. Well, that, I'm glad you mentioned that, that term, because these are the terms we've used in the past, psychosomatic, psychologic, you know, stress-induced. But a couple things have come about with these functional neurologic disorders in the past few years. One is, I do still find that stress is often a common cause. You know, a, a very common symptom is this. Kids are teenagers and, you know, we over, it happens more in teenagers, it happens more in females for sure. Under age like eight would be extremely unusual. Eight to 10 is the youngest age. Before mm. that is very, very unusual. Usually it's a stressor. So like I said, common thing is a kid is playing hockey here in Canada or soccer or uh, they're doing piano, violin, like we talked about, harp. <laughs> and they're doing this on a competitive level, a very advanced level, and they're balancing that with their schoolwork, usually A students and things like that. And I'll give you the example of hockey just because it's so prevalent in Canada. Kids get really into hockey, as you know, you and I both know, really into mm-hmm. hockey. But then when you get to the teenage years, you have other interests. You know, you may be interested in boys and girls and your peer group and hanging out and just doing other things, right? And sometimes the parents are so invested in something like hockey or sports that the kid now has this conflict, right? Where they don't want to do it anymore. They don't want to let people down. And so sometimes these stressors manifest as some of these symptoms. So that's just an example of a stress that we commonly see. But a couple things to remember. First of all, people are like, well, stress can't cause this, but it can. So I, I know people who they get so nervous about public speaking that they vomit, right? Or they have diarrhea. Yeah, sure. Like, how is that possible? You know what I mean? But this is because the, the mind can do these things to the body, right? People who hyperventilate and have panic attacks or their heart races, their heart is really racing. It's not like it's not racing. Yeah. But, but this is all caused, caused by this thing. So to say that that's not possible is not, not really true. But one thing that's come out over the past couple of years is that you don't have to have stressors. I personally think for my patients, it's good if they find stressors because it's something concrete that you can work on, but you don't have to have stressors. And in terms of what causes this, they're looking at what are called functional MRI studies. And so I don't want to get into too much detail to be too complicated. But basically, if I'm going to do a movement of my arm, say I have a tremor or I have an abnormal movement of my arm, right? If I'm going to move my arm voluntarily, there'll be a certain part of of our brain where you would see that light up in anticipation of me moving something. But you don't see that in patients who have functional neurologic symptoms or conversion disorder. Or if you have abnormal sensations, like you have numbness or tingling in an arm, say, you won't see the area that is involved in sensation kind of light up, but you'll see other areas involved, areas like the limbic system, which controls emotion, okay? So the Mm -hmm. overall thought is patients who have this conversion disorder type symptoms, they have abnormal activation of cerebral networks. So it's almost like I'm I'm simplifying this a lot. It's almost like instead of doing instead of activating the areas for your motor function or your sensory function, you're activating emotional things as well. And there's kind of a, this crosstalk that's occurring 
inappropriately. Mm -hmm. Okay. And some other studies suggest that you can have improvement in these abnormal pathways after symptoms have resolved. And we'll talk about treatment in a second. And they also had people, and this is very important, they had people in some of these functional MRI studies fake weakness. Okay. So they had a group that had conversion disorder and they had a group fake weakness. Plus and the, group, right? Yeah, that's right. And the activation was different between the two groups. That proves that you're not faking it, right? It's happening mm -hmm. on a more subconscious level because the people who were faking had like kind of a normal functional MRI. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So, so the thought now is people may have a heightened emotional response to whatever and are paying some of the other studies have suggested they're attending more to their body in an abnormal way. You're paying too much attention to your arms and legs. You're paying too much attention to your, your walking or, your, or, or the, the tremor in an arm. And that abnormal attention that you're paying to it is activating these abnormal pathways. So then the treatment would be to retrain your brain, and usually it's through physiotherapy and actually psycho psychotherapy, mm -hmm. what we call cognitive behavior therapy. And that retraining the brain kind of rewires things okay. back to the, the correct way. So the good thing about these functional MRI studies, and you can't just do these like they're experimental studies. So you can't just say, I want a functional MRI to prove that I have this conversion disorder. It's more, this is just giving more evidence that it's not faking. It's it, There is something going on with your brain that's causing you to have these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Before we end this on the treatments and all that, I think the way into treatment, you you complimented me on knowing the word psychosomatic. And of course, I learned that word from one of the greatest films of all time, Talladega Nights. And right. Talladega right. Nights, if you haven't seen it, I mean, it, it's to be seen. I don't know if it stands the test of time, but it was, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. A great comedy. But at any point, Ricky it's Bobby, hilarious. Ricky Bobby Jr., played by uh, Will Ferrell, <laughs> has you know he's in the hospital after a crash and you know he's in a wheelchair and the doctor tells his buddy cal naughton jr cal ricky's problems are completely psychosomatic and of course cal naughton played by john what's his name uh, john c Riley. yes so john c Riley's character cal the doctor goes ricky bobby's issues are completely psychosomatic and and he goes okay so he can you mean he can start a fire with his mind <laughs> He's, no, not at all, Cal. Uh, what I mean is it's all in his brain. So anyway, they're having a discussion with him. This is all in your brain. Like, it's not all in my brain. He goes, you, wanna sh you want me to see something? You want me to show you how it's all in my brain? And he takes a butter knife and stabs himself in the thigh. Yeah. And also, like, yeah! and he's up and everything's fine. And he's out of the wheelchair, but he does have a knife in his thigh. So whenever I think of things like this, and you know, because of this ridiculous movie that I once watched, I was wondering about that in the case of Davy's character mm. in Never Have I Ever. What if somebody was to like sort of punch her in the leg or stab her or pinch her? What happens to people when, mm -hmm. when it's created up top? What, what happens? Is, does the mind... Well, it's variable. And that's what I was saying. I've never stabbed somebody with a knife. But we use, when we check what's called pinprick sensation in neurology, we use a bunch of things. You could use a disposable kind of needle, but I don't usually use that. I just take sure. a tongue depressor, you know, tongue depressor with a popsicle stick, and you break it. And if you break it in a certain way, you'll get like, you can get a pull sure. tip on one end. So 
it's sterile, but it's not going to break your skin. And so sometimes what we do is a couple of things like we'll distract, we'll, we'll talk to the, the patient. And if you do that kind of unexpectedly, like they're not expecting you to kind of give them a, a stimulus like that in the, in say the bottom of their foot or something, then they kind of withdraw because they're not prepared for it. But other kids I've seen who have this conversion type symptoms, you can stick them with something kind of noxious or sharp like that, and there's no reaction. Again, like that just shows you how powerful this kind of rewiring of your brain is, that it can do that. The other things that we didn't really talk about, we talked more about the, the physical manifestation, but you can also have what we call non-epileptic events or non-epileptic seizures. That, that's that's probably the most common thing we see. Problem is a couple things to, to keep in mind. One is a lot of patients who have developed this conversion type symptoms have a history of adverse childhood events. And I don't know, maybe we'll do a whole episode on this, what's called these adverse childhood events or, and when you're dealing with these patients, it's called trauma-informed care. So basically a lot of people will have had trauma past trauma in their life. We're talking emotional, sexual, physical abuse uh, as examples. And a very high percentage of patients with conversion disorder will have had those in the past. So again, I'm not saying that that abuse caused this directly, but maybe it heightened your brain in a way. And we, we were, we're a lot of research on this, uh, on this adverse childhood event shows that you can have physiological changes in your brain and even changes in your genome, in your genetics, which is called epigenetics because of this trauma. So perhaps that's what that's what's going on. So that's just one kind of important thing to to think about that some of these patients will have this as a predisposition. I'm not really getting a sense of how you treat these patients. How do they come out of this? Is and is it always treatable or is it sometimes not treatable? Yeah, so a couple of things. The early diagnosis and a young age are two kind of positive things when it comes to prognosis. So the kids we see have a better prognosis than an adult who has it. And early diagnosis is important. But predictors of poor outcome are when patients think they're never going to get better. Hmm. If they think that it's if they deny any psychiatric factors, basically if they don't accept the diagnosis. And in pediatrics, you don't just have to get the uh, kids to accept the diagnosis, you have to get the parents to accept the diagnosis. If the parents don't accept it, it will never they'll never get better. And, and this is something I try and be clear about with the patients I see. And of course, we talked about people who get financial benefits from being sick, but could that be the malingering type thing? Some patients, like sometimes up to two thirds don't get better. So it's really important to focus on early diagnosis. Again, my recommendation to physicians is don't bring this up after you've done all the tests. Bring it up early. If you think that's what's going on, tell them right away. Obviously, you could say, well, we still have to do a couple tests to make sure that there's nothing else going on, but this is what we think it is. We don't think it's anything else. It's so important to bring that up early and have a, 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 instead of leaving it to the end. So, But if you could treat them early, if the treatment is with physiotherapy and and psychotherapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy and physiotherapy, and both those things. And some places, especially in the U.S., have an integrated program where sometimes you even get admitted to the hospital or admitted to a rehab facility, and you get a kind of intensive therapy and intensive physiotherapy and psychological mm -hmm. therapy. And that's what we know helps the most. There's no medicines that help. Antidepressants, stuff like that, have not really been studied and probably don't work. So it's not a medication type thing. It's those two things combining, and like we said, early diagnosis. Now, there are some patients who 
don't improve, as I said, some, in some adult studies up to two-thirds, which is obviously concerning. So let me ask you this, Ali. There was uh, somebody, and there's a couple of uh, case reports in the scientific literature about this, about patients with conversion disorder or functional neurologic, say paraplegia, right? And it's been years and they haven't walked. In fact, as you know, if you don't use your arms and legs, you'll get atrophy, right? So probably at this point, no atrophy, sure. Like they probably couldn't use them even if they were able wow. to stand up, like uh, sure. like Davy in uh, Never Have I Ever, because she was only a few months, or like Ricky Bobby, right? If that's the case, and this person and it's been years and they have no chance of recovery, should that person be allowed to? compete in like the Paralympics or because there's case reports of this where people argued with various organizing committees that no, I'm not going to recover. I have a letter from my doctor saying I'm not going to recover. I have the same, I should be able to compete in the Paralympics just like someone with a spinal cord injury. It's a very interesting question. Had we not done this episode and I not talked to you about this, I might've been like, no man, if it's in somebody's mind, they shouldn't be allowed to, right? But the fact that it's in somebody's mind doesn't make it any different. And as you say, once your limbs have uh, atrophied and all that, you're effectively, never mind how you got there, you're effectively paraplegic. And you, yeah, I, I think maybe they should. I would be on the side of championing these athletes, right? Because, because at some level, they're still trying to compete. They're still trying to do something positive. They'd still want to be active, but for whatever reason, inter you know, internally, those are all. You don't uh, like my answer, points. okay? No. But by the way, so one of our listeners the other day, Joe, was saying we don't disagree enough on this okay. podcast that we should disagree more. So I, I mean, I, I just my issue with what you just said is, uh, and I don't know, I've never really encountered this personally, so I, I don't really know. This is just from reading some news reports and scientific studies. But my problem is with the other Paralympians. These are people who, by the way, have also been in trauma, or they were. Born with uh, paralysis in their lower extremities, maybe they had a spina bifida, maybe they've been in a car accident or some sort of other accident. Who had they had physical trauma as well to their mm -hmm. body in a lot of cases, and they've overcome that and now are performing at a high level. And for them to be like, well, yeah, but you, I guess the issue is if that person is saying, well, you could walk if you wanted to, which again, as we we're saying, it's not really what's going on here. It's the old skin cancer thing, you know where somebody goes, you're a cancer survivor. I'm also a cancer survivor. I had a little bit of skin cancer here and then it was removed. Really? I had most of my small intestine removed, bud. And yeah, it's take, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like those, you're, everyone's trying to be in this category. And some people it's like, well, I don't know how much you deserve to be in this quote unquote, you know, this, this, this category. I, I think it's that thing at play too. And it's very, very tricky to talk about who deserves to do what I'm, I, I, we're finishing on this kind of downer note, but remember, especially it's, it's not a, just because you have these symptoms doesn't mean you're never going to recover, but the, the keys is, again, it's better in young kids, better with an early diagnosis. So for patients, it's important to listen if your physician explaining it. Make sure it's explained in a way that, that you kind of A, understand, B, agree with, and all your questions are answered, and you make sure that you're satisfied with whatever investigations you've had. And for physicians, again, I can't stress this enough, make sure you mention it early. Don't wait to discuss this with, with patients. Well, I can actually end this on a more positive note because when you were talking about panic attacks, you were talking about stuff that people who have not gone through conversion disorder can still relate to where somebody gets so nervous that 
they vomit or they feel like vomiting. That's all happening internally. That's all happening in your mind. So the flip of that is imagine the power of the human mind to right. also do positive things. That's a really good, yeah. Right? So I, that's what I took away from that. Like, yes, the mind can take you down, but the mind can also do incredible things to lift you up. And so much of, of competing, whether it is in sports or academics or just life in general, is a mental game. So I think that's a good takeaway here. That don't forget that your own brain can do wonderful things too, you know, potentially. I'm going to use that. All right. So that's our show for today. Ali, anything to mention here? You can all go to my website, standupali.com, and see uh, see what I'm up to. I think that's the best way. That's that's a great spot to find out what's happening with me. But, you know, those of you who have listened today, we really enjoyed this episode. We hope you did as well. As Asif often says, you know, a subscription. If you have not already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button, a like a five-star review. These things continue to help us always. For those of you who've done it, we're very grateful. For those of you who haven't, we'd ask you to consider doing that. Thank you so much. And again, we're on all the socials. We're on Dr. V Comedian Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're on everything. We're on YouTube. Again, if you guys can, uh, as Ali said, just follow us on those and send us your suggestions for future episodes, drvcomedian at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your ideas for topics. And please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only and are not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thank you.